The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey everybody, I'm Mark Lamont Hill, owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I am a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books, I'm the person who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book, and I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books, the podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, and important books. And sometimes we hang out with experts, fans, and other special guests to talk about some of the greatest books of all time. And speaking of special guests, today is absolutely my most favorite episode of all time, and I'll tell you why. Over the last year, bookstores all around America have taken a major hit. The COVID-19 pandemic, the global shutdown, the economic slowdowns, protests in the street, all of it has caused bookstores to have to reimagine their role in the community. It's caused a lot of us to shut our doors and it's changed in some ways the relationship between communities and books. And so I wanted to spend this episode talking and thinking about what bookstores went through this year, how they're managing, how they're surviving, how they're thriving, and also talk about what we're thinking about for the rest of the year in terms of what books are selling and, and what the road forward is for bookstores around America. So instead of pulling in people from all around the world, I decided, to quote the great Russell Conwell, to find the acres of diamonds in my own backyard. I went and grabbed my own Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books crew. I'm joined by Justin Moore, who is our general manager. I got Avisa Gallman, who is our bookstore manager. And I got Isaiah Rivera, who is our cafe manager. All of them deal with the books. They talk about the books. They know the business. And they're going to hang out with me. How y'all doing? Good, good, good. good. good Great, good. Mark. <laughs> Since y'all are special guests, I have to ask y'all the same question as all guests, but I expect y'all to have a special answer. I always ask everybody what they're drinking. I am currently drinking a very nice whole milk latte. I needed some energy today. I'm having a very rough day. And when I'm having a super rough day, I switch from plain black coffee to espresso. And I specifically do the latte. Even though I'm not a big dairy person anymore, the latte makes me feel fancy and French. Isaiah, you're the cafe manager. So I assume you have some real high, high quality, fancy drink you drink as well. Absolutely. I am drinking a drink that I created here at Uncle Bobby's, a drink called Chadwick Energy. And it's um, basically a chai tea with espresso and vanilla. And I use oat milk. Ooh, that actually sounds really good. Avisa, how about you? I went with a classic espresso today with our, our good La Colombians. Oh, nice. Do you, do you like put your pinky up when you drink it? <laughs> Absolutely. Always. <laughs> it's, the, it's the only it way to do better it. that way. It, it absolutely tastes better that way. J Justin, how about, how about you? Uh, you're not even a big coffee person. I've become one, but I do like my drink sweet, so I'm having a vanilla chai latte, you know, just, just, oh, just right. Okay, so for all, everybody out there, you know, there's a way that I have become a, a complete coffee snob, and the sweeter the drink, the more I feel like it's less authentic. So I have a little bit of judgment against Isaiah and Justin based on their coffee drinks, but I will let y'all live because you all have been so great this year uh, in helping Uncle Bobby's and really representative of bookstores all around the country uh, weather what has really been a very, very tough year. In March uh, of 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic reached such a proportion that there was a national stay-at-home order. And in our city, in our state of Pennsylvania, it hit relative even before the national order. And so we had to close. And it's hard to have a bookstore when you closed 
if your primary business is people walking in and buying books and, and having events and stuff like that. Justin, can you talk a little bit about what it meant for, for you? And you're in, you're in conversation with bookstore owners around the country. I mean, what did COVID-19 mean uh, for us and for bookstores? I mean, it was devastating. Obviously, the thing that sets independent bookstores apart from, you know, the big chains or, you know, Amazon is that in-person curation, right? That in-person customer experience, you know, that community feel. And what COVID did is kind of take away the one thing we had over, you know, kind of like the 800-pound elephant in the room. It also took away one of the other things that made Uncle Bobby special was our in-person author events, right? Like, that's the other thing that community indie bookstores can do is they can connect the audience with the author and do book signings and, and give these people a unique uh, experience. And, you know, COVID just wiped that completely off the map. So we went from, you know, operating as normal to having to try to completely change our business model within a few months. So it was, it was devastating, not just uh, Uncle Bobby's, but all of us. And, and I remember when it was started, when it started to happen, you know, in January, February, there was talk of COVID, but people were still moving, partly because of, you know, the, the, the leadership coming out of D.C., and we weren't sure just how big a, a problem this was, but it, it kept getting bigger and bigger. And I noticed it the most. We had a wonderful book event uh, for Linda Sarsour and her wonderful memoir. And we were expecting hundreds and hundreds of people. It, it was a Philly event. There are Muslims, there are Palestinians, there were people who just love a good memoir. There are people who are just Uncle Bobby's, you know, kind of our community. There was a sense that this was going to be a huge event. And we had a good number of people come out, but not nearly as many as I had hoped for. And Later on, people started saying to me, like, oh, well, you know, I was afraid of COVID. And that's when I first got, got my sense that this was something we really had to think about. I don't think, though, Avisa, that I, that I thought that, uh, that we closed. And I certainly didn't think we closed for, you know, months, almost six months. I mean, I, did, did, what was your sense at the time? I mean, we, were, we really hit the ground running at the beginning of the year with these events. And then that was the first thing to, to be extinguished. So, uh, so holy, but it was really, a really fun experience to see how the virtual events wound up uh, picking up immediately after to kind of keep the reading community engaged. I'm glad you brought up virtual events because part of the story of 2020 is the collapse of bookstores and, and, and the struggles of bookstores. But there's also a really interesting story about where we went after that. Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to pivot to, to the events in a second. I, I just want to talk a little bit about the crisis uh, a little bit more. I mean, I mean, you know, Justin, there's a way that a pandemic completely wipes out an, an economy. People can't work. People can't feed their families. Businesses can't pay their employees uh, for bookstore for, for the bookstores. And you, and, you know, a lot of bookstores around the country, there was a sense of panic. What happened? How did what, what did the bookstore community do? I mean, again, Amazon's and Amazon's still running because that's the other piece of this, right? Amazon is still doing its thing. In fact, when everybody's stuck in the house, Amazon becomes the best option, not just for books, but for a pack of steaks, for, for a thermometer, for whatever you need for your house. But, but, but bookstores, independent bookstore owners especially, they had, they, they had a response. What was it? Well, to be honest, if, if we're talking chronologically, that, that initial response, I think everything just froze. You know, there was so much confusion, there was so much fear, so much anxiety that literally nothing happened. And, you know, it was just like, what do we do next? You know, how do we pay our bills? You know, you're, you're calling your landlord before you're figuring out how you're going to sell your next book. You know, you're checking in with the rest of your team, you're checking in with family, you're, you're doing all of these kind of like human things, you know, I think at first. Then I think once 
we kind of got a sense that this wasn't going to be a two-week problem and this wasn't going to be a three-week problem and things started to stabilize a little bit, you know, then you started to think from a strategy standpoint, okay, can we do curbside pickup? Can we do online sales? So that's really where I think not just Uncle Bobby's, but other community bookstores went is like, all right, we're going we're gonna to go online. We're going to do curbside pickup. We're going to do these types of things to still keep people safe, but also try to get the books in people's hands as best as possible. Talk to me about online sales, because if you're selling books online, as you said earlier, you lose the, the one competitive advantage you have. Amazon can beat us in any bookstore, basically, at online sales. If a book costs $10 in the store and we buy it for 6 we try to sell it for 10 to make to make a 40% margin. I'm talking about an average trade book. Amazon will buy it for, for 6 and sell it for 8 And if it's really competitive, Amazon will buy it for 6 and sell it for 6 if they have to, just to stop us from selling it. I mean, there's a way that online we can't beat a behemoth like Amazon. So how do you, how, how can any bookstore think about selling online? You got this Amazon monster that not only can beat you at the price, but also beat you with the uh, with shipping and all the other cool stuff. So that's always been the problem. Before the pandemic, you know, it's going to be the problem two years from now when the pandemic hopefully is over, right? Like Amazon is still going to be the behemoth that it is. And the way you beat it is to not fight the same battle, right? We're not competing on price. We're not competing on convenience. Amazon can't beat us in culture right? They're never going to beat us in curation. They are never going to give the customers the same type of feel that we give them. So when we pivoted online, we weren't trying to compete with Amazon so so much as just giving customers who already wanted to support Uncle Bobby's an opportunity to continue to do so online. And we tried our best to make the online experience as close to a reflection of that in-store experience. And, you know, we're talking about the curation, we're talking about the communication with newsletters and social media to, you know, let our customers know what we think are the, the top books, the top, the top titles that, that represent the communities we serve. So, you know, we're not trying to mark down prices and offer free two-day shipping. That's not what we do. But what we'll do is we'll make you feel special. We'll make you feel seen. We'll make you feel heard. And we'll give this, this book purchase more of a purpose for you, right? And, and I think the, the, the community responded wholeheartedly from, you know, from moment one when we uh, launched online. No, I, I think that's right. And I saw that in New York with Lit Bar. I saw that uh, on the West Coast. I saw that in, in, uh, with Mahogany Books in D.C. and Baltimore. Uh, we saw that with Greenlight in Brooklyn. I mean, so many interesting bookstores uh, around the country, uh, Marcus Books in Oakland. We saw a, a lot of really interesting developments with people trying to figure out how to move the terrain of the book sale without, as you said, fighting the same battle with, with Amazon, who, again, its business model is structured on not just being the largest bookstore in the world, but on kind of pricing the rest of us out of the market. Avisa, you, you are in charge of events and also kind of book curation. So uh, the first thing I'm thinking about and first thing I thought about was, oh, my God, events are dead. I, I'm still very old school. I use an Apple IIe computer. I don't think about the virtual world very well. But your, your brilliance allowed us to think about this in a different way, along with Justin's and Isaiah a little bit. And, and we were able to think about online book events as something to do. What is the difference between having an event, a book event in person, uh, and having an event online other than the fact that the person is just digital? The big difference is the opportunity to engage directly and in person with the author. I think that was one of the bigger things that... Um, that really brought people out um, 
now with the online events, the participation varies because there's really not much they need to do. There's not, um, they can just, you know, click a button and from their homes, they don't even have to uh, get dressed if they don't want to. Huh. Um, whereas the activity of leaving your house and going to a place with other people, it was just a different experience. But there are benefits. There are so many different benefits of having them, them now virtually. Um, the ease and I think of maybe in, we, we always do a question and answer session with the audience after our discussions. And I think that just the ease and, you know, not necessarily being on camera allows people to feel more free to be more open and honest sometimes in oh. asking those questions. That, that's super interesting. Just a totally different type of engagement, but the engagement is still there. That seems to be true. The in-person event is its own thing. And as an author, I know what it's like when I go to a town and there are two or 300 people who come out. If I'm lucky, some days it's just 10, some days you get a thousand. But if you get a couple hundred people there who are excited about you, excited about your book, you get to meet them, you get to shake hands. Back in the, the stone ages when we still shook hands and hugged people and, and took pictures with them and, and signed their book. I mean, all of that stuff is part of the, the in-person experience. People get to actually be in physical space with somebody who they admire or somebody they want to get to know or somebody who doesn't know at all who you are and you can do the kind of hard sell in person by your presentation, by the conversation that you give. I was afraid that people wouldn't come out to an online book. I, I, I was definitely one of the people saying to Justin and to Avisa, people come out because they get to see the person. Why would they want to go and watch the person on Zoom or on Skype or on crowd, you know, whatever the, whatever the platform is, why would somebody want to see somebody digitally? How's that different than watching them on YouTube or something else? And, and there does seem to be something different about that. Right. I mean, I, I think you're right that the anonymity and the freedom to do it from the house, there's, you know, the questions of, of mobility, access. You know, I don't have to get in a car. I don't have to drive. I don't have to pay to go to the event. I can sit on the couch in my boxers and watch it if I want to. All of that I get. But then the question is, what motivation do people have to go to my event versus another event? Right. Because part of it, what it is, that author comes to your city and then the next city. But now I, we got people in California watching our, our book events. We got people in Japan watching our book events in a very different way. What do you think draws people in? And that's for any of you all. What do you think draws people in to uh, an online book event, right? I, I understand the question and answer part of it. What else? I think it, a lot of it is owed to our really dope, loyal followers who just want to know what we're doing and want to, to keep up with us. You know, they're not able to, to come to the, the shop anymore and sit and, you know, and jive with us. But this way, they're on top of, of what we're doing and what we're reading. That's another piece of this too. People are reading a lot these days. People were home and people said, I need something to do. I remember the first month that everybody in America was home and I saw Michelle Obama's memoir, Shoot to the Top. And I saw some other uh, memoirs and, and autobiographies, Shoot to the Top. It seemed like the best sellers were starting to sell again. Is, is that a fair assessment, Avisa? Oh, absolutely. You know, before it was, um, you might buy the book and not, or, you know, have it on your, on your wish list and not get around to reading it. But, you know, suddenly everyone had all the time to <laughs> tackle that, that reading. I think, I think that's exactly right. And, and I was excited to see that because even my book, Nobody, uh, which did fairly well a few years ago, got a resurgence because people were saying, like you said, either I need to read this book that I never read before, but also I want a book that I can trust. 
you know, so I, I know this is good. I know this Trevor Noah memoir is good. I know this Tiffany Haddish memoir is good because everybody bought it. And I want to sit in my house for the next couple of weeks and read. I want to make sure it's something like I'm not trying to experiment right now. That seems to be the sentiment uh, of a lot of people during this time. And um, Isaiah, I know you were you're, you're the cafe manager, but at the same time, you also are kind of the front line of people buying books. You see what people are buying. You see what people are interested in. And you saw even in the last days of of, of kind of bookstores being open, what people were holding on to. What, what was your sense of what was going on ar- around the time of the pandemic? I think a lot of people, nobody knew exactly what to expect. So everybody was kind of scared, full with a bunch of emotions. But um, so just seeing how things are, doing, are going now is a testament to how loved we are as a, as a team at Uncle Bobby's. No, I think, I think that's right. I, th- I think community had a big part to do with that. Among other things, Justin, I don't mind telling a little bit of Uncle Bobby's business. Maybe not, maybe not all of it, but a little bit of Uncle Bobby's business. But bookstores were in financial trouble. There's a way that not only could bookstores not be open because of the pandemic, but then there's the perpetual cycle of we can't pay our bills, we can't pay our vendors, we can't buy new books, we don't have new books, and, and so no one comes in, no one comes in, so we can't pay our debt. And then before you know it, your, your bookstore has books that are three years old on the shelf, and you don't have any credit with vendors, and it's hard to keep the store open. This is a familiar narrative of bookstore owners around the country. And the pandemic seemed like it was just going to make that crisis even more urgent and and more widespread. But then there's the government, which offers some kind of intervention. There were city and state grants, and then there's the question of, of donations. All three of these things seem to be part of the equation not just for Uncle Bobby's, but for a lot of bookstores. I mean, what kept bookstores afloat? How did bookstores manage to save themselves? Well, I don't want to speak for the finances of other bookstores because I I honestly don't know them, but I'll speak a little bit about us. Not only were we a bookstore that had their own bookstore challenges, but we opened in 2017. So we're still just a new business. So we were barely out of like toddler phase when all of these things happened. But what the pandemic did is it did provide us with an opportunity to slow down for the first time since we opened, you know, given your stature, you know, when we opened, we kind of were like a rocket, you know, and we had customers from day one, which is a good problem to have, but also we never really had a time to really assess our operations and see what we were doing well and try to pivot from the things that we weren't doing so well. So there was a silver lining in that sense that we got to kind of evaluate, you know, uh, in our operations and, and personnel and things like that. But strictly from finances, you know, we were able to kind of put those things in order and utilize the the generosity from our GoFundMe campaign. You know, our customers, you know, just gave us money out of love and support, right? They didn't ask for anything in return. We were fortunate to get some city grants and some federal grants and loans to help pay vendors, to help pay back credit card debt, to help keep the lights on literally and figuratively, right? So it did provide us with an opportunity to kind of stabilize financially. And then when you combine that with our ability to restructure our operations, it put us in a position to say, okay, this is almost like we're reopening again for the first time. And if we get to do that, how will we do things differently? So, you know, we got to implement some of these new ideas, some of these fresh ideas combined with some financial stability that we kind of never really had. But, you know, like I said, given some of the generosity, we were fortunate to have that. So I think we, you know, in some ways we are in a stronger position financially than we were back in March. Right. But in, in a lot of ways, we, we were lucky and in some, some sense a rare uh, case. Um, first of all, we got city and state grants. A lot of bookstores around the country 
tried to get them in cities where they were available, but couldn't access them. Or there was no central network of, and this isn't just for bookstores, this is for a lot of small businesses. It was just hard to get access to the information or um, people applied and the funds went away so quickly. The city, you know, Philadelphia, the city thought that they had enough funds for almost everybody that would apply. And it turns out they had five or 10 times the number of people they expected to apply applying. And so they just, they literally ran out of money. And then there's the PPP loan, part of the CARES Act, the Trump administration pushed Congress and Congress ultimately passed a $1 trillion bill uh, to stimulate the economy. Uh, And part of that is the payroll protection plan, which was intended to give small businesses a a push to allow businesses to keep people employed, et cetera. But one of the problems was a lot of small businesses didn't get them. A lot of Fortune 500 companies did. I mean, you got Shake Shack getting getting a PPP loan that was designed for businesses with 50 employees or or less. And they got it, even though they have 6,000 employees, because they based it on how many employees they had at each individual Shake Shack, even though there were thousands of Shake Shacks around the country. There is a way that the provisions of PPP loans weren't as helpful. A lot of small businesses, particularly bookstores, needed to pay payroll. They needed to pay their vendors. They needed to, as you said, pay the landlord. And because all of it had, or a big chunk of it at the time, had to go to payroll, it became even harder for people to use the money effectively, even if they got it. So, you know, the government tried to stabilize small businesses in some ways, but it seemed like everybody was struggling to, one, to access money, and then two, to find ways to use it. There's another thing that I thought was interesting that came up during this age. We talked about fighting Amazon. Bookshop.org pops up in this late winter, early spring as an alternative to, to Amazon. Can y'all talk a little bit about what that is? Bookshop.org launched in mid to late January, like you said, as an alternative to Amazon. They were basically an online-only marketplace where they would partner up with local independent community bookshops and they would provide commissions for any sale. So the, the relationship is, you know, you, you're a bookstore, you sign up as an affiliate and you generate sales, right? Like you promote to your own, in, you know, your own customer, customer base, you curate the list and a portion of those sales comes back to you, right? Which is a huge difference than what Amazon does, right? Amazon, they do all this, they, they take all the money, they keep everything, they don't distribute it back, right? Bookshop's entire model is to help, you know, buoy the uh, independent uh, bookstore industry. So their presence alone, I think, kept a lot of bookstores in business. And one of the things it did for us specifically was it allowed us to do what we do best, which is curate culture, and promote, and they got to handle all the online fulfillment, all the, the customer service questions and things like that. You know, we didn't really have the staff or the bandwidth to really do that, but it provided us with an outlet to really become a, a pretty strong powerhouse uh, in terms of online book sales. And, you know, the sales have been just, you know, I think exceeded expectations. So Bookshop definitely deserves a lot of credit for providing us with a lot of those resources. No, absolutely. It, it, it allowed independent bookstores to function like a much bigger company than they are. And it allowed them to stabilize with, with like you said, without without the resources for fulfillment and, and full staff. I mean, it, it was an incredible boon. And by the way, we're still on bookshop.org. You can go to bookshop.org slash shop slash Uncle Bobby's and access all the books that we've talked about today and do all of your online shopping. And again, many bookstores around the country have bookshop.org links in, and we need that type of thing. Uh, in order to keep everybody going. Uh, Something happened later in the spring, a tragedy. George Floyd was killed. 
And this was after the death of Ahmaud Arbery. This was after the killing of Breonna Taylor, which we found out about a little bit later, a lot of us, just because of how the news operated. And there were protests in the streets. And at the very same time that there were so many protests on the streets, you look at the New York Times bestseller list, and at the top of every list was a race book. Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist and his book stamp right near the top. Robin DiAngelo, White Fragility, right near the top. We saw the resurgence of books like Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage. We saw almost any book on race that came out hit the New York Times list. And that wasn't just a reflection of what was happening kind of on, on, on the big box retailer side. Bookstores all around the country were being flooded with calls for race books. Avisa, like, what, what, what kind of stuff did you see happening from your perspective as a, as a bookshop manager? It was insane. The national hunger for these, you know, these 10 titles. I remember reading White Fragility years ago and thinking, wow, more people should read this book. And mm. it's crazy to see now that um, it was just how mainstream all of these titles became. And I know we, we don't know exactly who's buying the books. It's not like the old days when people would come in and ask for them. But from the name, from the list, I mean, did it seem like, because there's a narrative that white liberals decided when there was a race crisis to, to their primary mechanism was to go buy race books. Is, is that, is that seem to be what happened from y'all perspective? Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, there were not just individuals who were, wanted to, um, to get these books, um, but also, you know, companies and, and, and schools just, you know, for the entire staff. It's interesting thing, and I got to give them credit a lot of these organizations and individuals also decided to support independent bookstores at the same time that they were doing this stuff. Cause it'd be kind of whack to call for social justice and go to the most exploitative book outlets and, and commercial outlets in the country. No, they, they went to us. They went to Eswan books in LA. They, they decided that they could do this differently by going to Hakeem's in Philadelphia. They decided that if they reached out to these different, to Harriet's, uh, they, they decided that if they reached out to, to independent stores, they could also reinforce their social the social justice commitment. Now, whether they read them books or not, I can't say, you know, because America looked real familiar. But the fact that people at least were buying books and using the books as a way of understanding the problem, understanding the crisis, also reinforces the role and the value and the purpose of the bookstore. You can, yeah, you can go online and, and Google stuff and find some books, but there's nothing like a bookstore that offers you the kind of curation, the kind of list making, the kind of grouping of books that lets you know, okay, read this one, but now nah, that one's kind of whack. Oh yeah, this one sold a million copies, but this one won't really help you understand the problem. And also to be more creative in our solution, in our problem solving, right? Like it's not enough to just read White Fragility. You might have to read The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison so that you understand what it's like to grow up as a black girl trying to make sense of being told you have the wrong hips and lips and nose and eyes. There's a way that a bookstore can do that, that an algorithm online just can't do because they don't get it either. And that's why we encourage people to not just look at the book with the right title, but to talk to people who know books and who do books, who can help you understand what it means to be part of a bookstore experience. And a good example is if you go to our, our curation, or if you go to bookshop.org slash shop slash Uncle Bobby's, we don't just have a list of books on race. We have collections of stuff that we think will help people think through the moment in really interesting ways. Isaiah, I mean, you're, the store is starting to open up again and you're seeing people buying books. What kind of stuff are people buying now? Has it changed? It's kind of the same. Like a lot of race books are being purchased. A lot of the same ones. Like I know that one of the popular ones, uh, Me and White Supremacy, like a lot of people are buying uh, that. Lay, lay the side. Yes. Everybody's getting that. And um, 
but one that I've noticed is like really doing really well. I thought it was funny because his name constantly resurfaces is James Baldwin. A lot of people are really into capping uh, James Baldwin books. They don't even care what book it is. They just want something by him. Wow. That's super interesting. You know, James Baldwin's most celebrated book, at least uh, from critical commercial standards, is The Fire Next Time. And a lot of ways that allows people to get an entry point into the conversation about race. And it's a really, really fascinating book. It's, it's a beautiful book. Uh, I happen to, to adore The Fire Next Time. But as Eddie Glaude talked about in our first podcast, James Baldwin has a very deep body of work that gets at race in sometimes more powerful, critical, and sometimes less optimistic ways than The Fire Next Time. The Fire Next Time is almost like the I Have a Dream speech. And when we get to the other stuff, we get into more critical analyses of what the possibilities are of, Amer- of American life and American racial life. So I encourage everybody to buy all the ball when you, you can. But you're right. I mean, ball when is something that people come in and buy a ton. I'm also surprised at how many people are still buying, of course, ta Coates. And not because I have any issue with the book. I think the book is a wonderful book between the world and me. I'm just surprised anybody left who doesn't have it because the book has sold millions of copies and it still has such a powerful impact on those who read it. It's a beautifully written book. It's a wonderful narrative. It's insightful. It's critical. ta work is also something that, that gets a lot of attention in the store. So I'm, I'm excited. Lisa, what other books are people buying a lot that you see? It's been fun replenishing um, the books that are just are always selling out. Asada, is one, uh, the uh, autobiography of Sada Shakur is one that we can't keep it on the shelves. Mm. Um, along with the autobiography of Malcolm X, those are, I think, the, the ones that people come specifically to Uncle Bobby's <laughs> to get. No, those are two major books, two major memoirs. And of course, the Black Lives Matter movement, when it emerges in 2014 and really hits its stride in 2016, Asada Shakur is one of the voices and faces uh, that's, that's invoked the most, right? When you hear people talking uh, about we have nothing to lose but our chains. Uh, they're quoting Asada Shakur, a letter from Asada Shakur. Uh, and of course, Malcolm X always looms large uh, in, in the Black freedom struggle. And you'll see in the next couple of weeks, even more Malcolm X attention because October 29th of this year will be the 55th anniversary of the release of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And also there's another wonderful uh, by Les Bowen and his daughter, a uh, narrative of Malcolm X that will come out at the end of October. And when, usually when people read a book about Malcolm X, they then want to go back and read the autobiography of Malcolm X all over again. The audiobook for the autobiography of Malcolm X, which was read by Lawrence Fishburne, came out a couple of weeks ago. So there's a lot of interesting stuff. Again, you can go to bookshop.org and see all that stuff. But it, it, it's an interesting time for memoirs, and particularly Black memoirs. So I'm excited to see Malcolm and Asada, my two favorite memoirs, pop up on the bookstore scene. So let's talk about what you're excited to see coming down the pipe. We're getting near the end of 2020. There's some cool books coming out. There's some stuff that I'm excited about that just came out. Justin, you're one of the people that posts new releases and stuff like that. Anything you're excited about book-wise? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's no surprise given the, the climate, given the fact that we're in the middle of a presidential election. I think Obama's book that's coming out next month, we're not going to be able to keep that one on shelves, right? Because if Michelle Obama's book is any indication, regardless of whoever wins that election, that book is going to be sought out like no other. Just to let y'all know, Michelle Obama, every bookstore in America, but especially every black bookstore in America, owes, whether it's Christmas, whether it's Eid, whether it's Kwanzaa, y'all owe a gift to Michelle Obama because that book kept the lights on, it kept doors open, it kept people employed. I, when I tell you, I have never sold a book like I have sold 
Michelle Obama's. And I've worked in, I've been working in bookstores since I, I ran a bookstore when I was 19 years old. I had never seen a bookstore sell a book like Michelle. I mean, you couldn't keep it. If we put a hundred on the table, it, they'd be gone within an hour. I mean, it, it was stunning to see that. And you're right with Barack Obama's book coming out November 10th. I'm expecting more of that. That's that, that has to be, are you, are you, are you excited to read it? Or are you just excited to sell it? Both. I'm excited to read it. I'm excited to sell it, but I'm also just excited. I think particularly with our customer base, I think people are just so disenfranchised. They're so kind of just over the presidential election. And I think a lot of people wish for those Obama days again. And this book is going to give people that, that nostalgia and, and some of that positive hope message that I think people really want and they're still looking for. So I'm just, I'm just excited just for the release, just because I know that the people that, that frequent Uncle Bobby's are just, they're just going to enjoy it. They're going to get what they really want out of it. That's right. If Joe Biden is president, they will celebrate to it. If Donald Trump wins, a lot of our base will will kind of mourn with it, and that'll be the thing that consoles them. Hopefully, and this is just me talking, hopefully it'll be the last, though, of the political books for the season. You know, I hate that when I look at the bestseller list, I hate that when I look at every bookstore shelf around the country, all I see is books on how to beat Trump, what's wrong with Trump. Mary, you know, Mary Trump's book was super interesting. Uh, Bob Woodward's book, super interesting. Uh, it's not that I don't, John Bolton's book, super interesting. It's not that I have an issue with any of these books on Donald Trump. It's just enough. I mean, I want to think about something else. I want to talk about something else. And this political season has made that the only thing in town. At least the Obama book won't be about Trump. It'll be about his reflection, his memoir. And he wrote every word of this book. So I'm interested, interested to see how that plays out. Avisa, what are you looking forward to seeing? So one of the things that's been really, really refreshing about the books coming out this year are just in fiction, in terms of fiction stories that are centering completely different or characters of color, intersectional characters, LGBTQ characters. And there's a book coming out this month, October, Memorial by Brian Washington, centers an interracial gay couple that's been getting some really good buzz. I'm excited about that. We have to make sure that we put that on our front page because I think that's something that people will absolutely want to read about. And hopefully we can get them on Coffee and Books to talk about it. Uh, Isaiah, how about you? I'm a huge memoir head, so I'm extremely excited for the Obama book. I just purchased uh, Mariah's new book, The Meaning of Mariah, yes! and I'm excited to start reading that. Thank you. I, I, don't, and, I, I, don't want, I don't want everybody to act like they're just so highbrow they only read, like, serious political books. That Mariah memoir, shout out to McKay. Uh, I, I'm excited about the Mariah book, which was uh, penned with my our dear friend, my dear friend, uh, Michaela Angela Davis. Yo, that, yeah. I, have you started it? Have you started it? I started it. I um I am on like chapter five. I'm um just got past the parts about her father. It's it's dope. It's really dope, and I'm a huge fan of her anyway. So it was only right that I got it. <laughs> well, that book is available right now again on Uncle Bobby's page, uh, bookshop.org/shop/uncle Bobby's. But it's also a book that you can get anywhere. I just want you to buy it. Buy it from somebody because that book is super super good. And I'm like Isaiah, one of those like biography slash memoir heads. I love to hear the story of people I admire. Mariah, of course, is one of them. A few weeks ago on the show, we had David Ritz, make sure y'all check that out, uh, who has written books with so many of the great celebrities, uh, so many of the great musicians in particular of the 20th century. It's a dope book that I think uh, everybody should check out. Check out the podcast where he talks about what it means to, to ghostwrite with those people. So before we go, normally I, I torture my guests with a, a, a game that I won't make y'all play, which is buy it, borrow it, or burn it, only because it's three of y'all. But I am going to consign you all to a Mark, desert Mark, island. Mark, 
Yes. I'm actually excited for your book that comes out next month as well. And it's not just because you own Uncle Bobby's and <laughs> that you made me say this. But no, seriously, the title of your book is We Still Here. And as a collective, we came up with that as a hashtag in March. You know, it was like within the first week of we closing and we just wanted people to know that we're still here, right? Like the, we, the doors might be closed, but Uncle Bobby's isn't going anywhere. And, you know, your book, I think, is going to be very present to people, right? Like it's going to reflect all of the trauma, all of the stress, all of the things that we as, you know, Black folks have gone through since March and before. And I'm excited to read it, but I'm also excited for other people to read it because I think people need that kind of content. I think people want to try to contextualize, try to try to put what's happened in the last seven months into some type of perspective. You know, you, I know you didn't expect me to say that, but that's, that's something I'm excited about, right? Like, cause it's a little bit different than just a, a memoir, just a, a, you know, a novel, but this is like, Hey, this is what happened to us the last seven or eight months. So, you know, I'll oh, wow. expect a lot of those books in the next three years, but like, you're kind of, you rushed this out. Like you, you got this out really fast to, I think give people, you know, I think some comfort food, you know what I mean? Like before the year is over. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for the We Still Here title to come out next month. Wow, I, I, I appreciate that. I'm glad somebody loves me out of Uncle Bobby's crew. Avisa and Isaiah done got, no, I'm just joking. Pre-ordered it. Oh, no, that's dope. That's dope. I appreciate y'all. Yes, the book is called We Still Here, uh, Pandemic, Policing, Protest, and Possibility. Uh, it comes out November 10th, and we'll do an episode on that too. I, I have to figure out who's going to, do the episode with me. Maybe y'all can come back and, and, and talk to me about it. That actually might be fun. Y'all got to read it first and then y'all can make me do it one of those torturous games. But um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm super, super happy to have talked to y'all uh, and I love y'all, but it doesn't mean that y'all get away without having to do something that no guest likes to do, which is pick a book over all others. So y'all are on a desert island. Y'all stuck with each other. And normally I give people three books, but since it's three of y'all, y'all each get one book. If you go on a desert island, you can only have one book that you have to have for the rest of your life to read. What is that book? I'm going to start with, since Justin was nice, I'll let him go last. Isaiah, you go first. That's really easy. I would take Heavy by um, Casey Lehman. Wow. Casey Lehman gets so much love on this show. And a lot of it is from me. You know, me and Michael Denzel Smith talked about it a little while back as well. Heavy by Casey Lehman is one of the most powerful memoirs that I've ever read. He, he's my favorite living writer right now. So. I totally get that. Now, if I was on a desert island, I don't know if Heavy would be the book I would bring. Not because it's not an amazing book. Again, I think it's one of the best books written in the 20th century or 21st century. It's just so heavy. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're going to be in a desert island crying. You're going to be on a desert island reflecting on all your emotional pain. You're going to be on a desert island trying to repair relationships. You're going to be doing healing. I mean, it's all dope. It's just like, that's a lot for that. I thought you, Isaiah, as the musician... And as the music head was going to say, like, you know, a more light book, a fun book. But no, Heavy is a dope choice. And you stuck with it now. Visa, what are you picking? I think I'm going to go with with Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good by Adrienne Marie Brown. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's just chock full of dope essays and just, you know, just the perfect reminders to just feel good no matter what. No, it's, a, it's an amazing book with a really stunning uh, cover as well. Just a lot of great things about that book. Again, Desert Island, I don't know if I would be thinking about activism, but, you know, I'll let you live with that one too. Justin. <laughs> uh, all right, so the book I think I'd pick is I'd probably pick The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm. Um, it's the type of book that I take a little bit something different 
every time I read it, it's kind of like a Jay-Z album, you know what I mean? So I think I would need a book that would kind of have to be able to refresh itself to me. And that's the first book that crossed my mind that I think I can kind of get a little bit of a different experience every time I read it. So that's that's why I picked that book. That sounds like an interesting choice too. That, that for me, and I, I ask guests this question all the time, so I often think like if I was stranded on an island, would I want fiction or nonfiction, right? Would I want to be escaping or would I be wanting like some insight, right? Would I want something poetic? Would I want something? It's a tough question. It's an impossible question. So there's no right or wrong answer. But I like all of your choices. You all did great. I need y'all to come back and hang out with me more often like this. Can y'all do that? Yeah. yeah. Invite us. Yeah. In, in, yeah. Invite us. Justin, you sound so excited about this. I'm going to make sure that you get the first <laughs> invite. <laughs> I know. I know everybody can access y'all through the Uncle Bobby site. You can go to uh, Instagram and go to Uncle Bobby's. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Uncle Bobby's. Isaiah, you also have your own podcast. What's it called? I do. It's called The Zeke Ali Experience. And it's on all streaming sites. The Zeke Ali Experience. Everybody, make sure you check that out. It's pretty dope. Maybe one day I'll get invited to his. You know, you would think that, like, <laughs> working with him and knowing him and stuff, even having him on mine, one day I would get an invite. But no, it's no love, you. man. I got you. Maybe exactly. if I write another book. Maybe when my other book comes out by then, I will have reached the status. But I'll, I'll, Yo, I'll take it. When you write the Luther book. Yeah. The oh. Luther, was, wow. That's a high standard. Okay, so the Luther, I'm, I, everybody, I wasn't going to tell this to the world until it was close to done. It was my most deeply held secret, but Isaiah has already revealed it to the world. <laughs> yes, I, I'm going to write a book on the great Luther Vandross. Not trying to exceed the work of Craig Seymour, who wrote a wonderful book on Luther Vandross. Just trying to tell a slightly different story about Luther, maybe even a documentary. So one day that'll come. He's saying, I have to write a memoir on the, on, my, on the greatest singer of all time in order to make his podcast. That's pretty high cotton, but I'm going to meet that standard for you, Isaiah. I want to thank y'all for joining me. I'll see y'all soon. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Coffee and Books. Make sure you follow us on Instagram with the handle Coffee and Books Show. Also, you can buy all the books that have been discussed here on bookshop.org slash Uncle Bobby's, or you can go to unclebobbies.com. That's Uncle B-O-B-B-I-E-S dot com.